Hello and welcome to episode 68 of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Babonis, and joining me today is Richard Alston, Officer of the Order of Australia, former president of the Liberal Party, long-serving cabinet minister, retired senator, high commissioner to the United Kingdom, and an accomplished strawberry farmer. <laughs> we'll be talking to Richard about his new CIS paper, Reflections on the EU Project and Its Flaws, A Fatal Conceit About Markets and the Real World. Richard Alston, how are you? Uh, Salvatore, I'm well, thank you. I, I suppose uh, it's politically correct, but I have to say I've probably had a pretty good pandemic. <laughs> well, how are the strawberries? That's what I want to know. It's springtime coming. Uh, there's always problems. Yeah, yeah. weather's just one of those many challenges, but uh, it's an interesting area. Well, another interesting area is European Union politics. And you call the European Union, well, you say that it is in, quote, genteel decline. Is Europe really declining? And is it so genteel? Uh, well, the French actually have coined a name for it. They call it declinism. <laughs> and, and essentially, Macron accepts that that's the state of play because he doesn't want to go down the economic reform path. And it is uh, seriously in decline. Its uh, pr world proportion of GDP has shrunk dramatically. And I think PwC, so it's now a quarter and it'll probably go down to 10% within 20 years. So... Uh, it's got a serious problem and people are leaving. You know, there's, there's serious mass migration of uh, higher, you know, well-educated people. So that aggravates the situation. And, of course, the, growth, the birth rate's down for long-term citizens, but a lot of the new recruits, particularly from the Muslim community, uh, have high birth rates. And um, they're not necessarily the, the leaders of tomorrow. So... Um, I think it's it's in very poor shape myself, and I call that decline, yes. But surely, now that Brexit has been accomplished and that British ball and chain, which was holding back further European integration, now that that's been severed, surely this must be a, a golden age for Europe. Uh, is the European Union euphoric about its post-Brexit future? No, look, I think they were desperate to keep Britain in there, one, because they funded a lot of their projects, but two, they're terrified that others would follow that example. And I think now there'd be a sense of despondency because they realise they're not going anywhere. They understand, they never say so, but they understand why Britain's left. And I think deep down most of these people realise that you've got to have... Gen a range of freedoms, but you've got to have economic competition. But that's not the business model, and they, they're all living high on the hog, so they just continue on with ever closer union, and um, it's just not going to work. I mean, they, they, they never talked about anything like this at the foundation, but they certainly thought ever closer union was, was a good idea. But when you think about it, federations like the US and Australia work because you have different states. I mean, the classic example in Australia was when Jockey Peterson abolished probate duties and immediately the Commonwealth abolished um, its estate duties and no one's ever gone near there ever since. So you need to be pushed by competing forces and yet, no, 
Uh, they want regulatory, um, whatever they call it, uniformity. Um, they, they simply don't want anyone to do things differently. They want to raise taxes and they want to have them standardised, whereas people like the Baltic states are very keen to have 15 20% income tax rates. And that's probably the way of the future. I mean, the OECD is just giving us a lecture today that we should have higher GST and lower income tax. But none of those things, which do drive reform, are on the table for the EU. And uh, I, I think that um, most people who study this closely would not be very uh, confident at all about the model. It, I mean, it's the wrong way around. If you were ever going to succeed, you'd have to have done it upfront uh, with full political integration. But having started with monetary integration and then they abolished the primacy of economic reform, um, it, they're in a no-man's land, really. They're never going to get there because nationalism, uh, which they deplore, I mean, Einstein used to think it was the worst of all possible evils, and I think there's still a sense of that in Europe, uh, whereas everyone from else from the Pope down think that it's a very good thing to be proud of your country and to feel distinctive and to have uh, cultural characteristics which are interesting to yourself and others. But the EU model would effectively do away with all that. I mean, they used to believe in subsidiarity, which meant making decisions at the level closest to the people. Now it's quite the opposite. Macron is a top-down man. He, he dis despises anyone else to, thinking about other ideas and he he has no sympathy at all for the masses as far as I can see. Yeah, I'd like to pick up several threads from what you've just said, particularly on subsidiarity and on nationalism, but let me start with competitive federalism because you give the counterexample to the European Union of the United States as a federal union and Australia as a federal union. But surely the European Union, which is composed of nominally sovereign states, has an even, even greater degree of uh, local control or local autonomy than U.S. states or Australian states. Is that not the case? Yes, because they're nation states. And that's, that's why this model can't work, because you're essentially asking people to forget all about your own nationalism and pretend that there's only one country that matters. And I think in the polls they've done, it's something like 7% regard themselves as EU citizens. I remember a classic example of my wife and I were in Lisbon a few years ago when the World Cup was on, and the streets were just chock-a-block with people because Portugal was still in there. But as soon as Portugal lost, they all disappeared. No one was interested anymore. So nationalism is a very valid characteristic. I mean, you look at the Olympic Games, People are never going to say, well, really, I'm a European, but I used to be, um, you know, French or German or whatever. They don't. We've all got our heritage, and it goes back several thousands, some thousands of years. Now, you also mentioned uh, subsidiarity, and I was interested to hear you bring in that exact word, because subsidiarity is a major element in Catholic thinking and Catholic intellectual thinking, political yep. thinking. Absolutely. And and you in your paper, you highlight the very Catholic, social Catholic, but still Catholic origins of the European Union and its three leading lights having all been Catholic. So what 
what can we see this transition away from subsidiarity in Europe as being connected to the transition away from Europe's Catholic roots in some way? I th you're absolutely right. Subsidiarity has always been a fundamental tenet of the Catholic faith. And uh, we all understand why, um, because it's democratic, effectively. But the trouble with the EU project is that even the people who first came up with the idea, who were a couple of League of Nations politicians, French and English, um, they, they didn't trust people. They hated nationalism. They thought it was the cause of world wars. And uh, from the very outset, there was this deceit. You know, we don't ever need to consult people. We don't have to bring them in on the project. And I wouldn't say this, but we'll lie if necessary. Juncker says it, of course. But um, And then you build on that. And I think the three principal founding fathers, who were probably all very decent, honourable men in, in every respect, but, again, I think they would have had that same mindset that, you know, we are... We are selfless drivers uh, for Europe. Uh, we can be trusted. You, we'll, we'll get back to you later sort of thing. And it just got further and further away. And as those very Christian people um, disappeared, they were replaced essentially by careerists. And worse still, certainly from my point of view, the Christian faith just got sidelined. So when they last came up with a a reform of their constitution. They refused to even mention the Christian heritage. They just talked about, you know, humanitarian roots or, you know, whatever vague nonsense because they're anti-religion. They're, they're strident secularists. And, uh, again, it's, it's not a healthy situation. And um, I think that's been pointed out by a lot of people. Certainly the, the Catholic Church has made it plain from... But I think popes have said this. I mean... Um, Benedict, certainly, who was a, a pan-European intellectual, he now deplores the fact that, um, that they just don't seem to have any real spiritual content in their thinking anymore. And um, once you, you preference social model above economic model, you're, you're asking for trouble. And that's, that's where it's all gone off the rails because there was a time in the, you know, the predecessor bodies, constitutions, where uh, they did talk about imp the importance of economics. But when Maastricht came along in 91 and they brought in the euro, uh, it got deleted. And suddenly economics wasn't primacy anymore. It became what the Germans had regarded under Adenauer as an economic miracle, where you had this social model. Well, now it, the social model runs the whole place. I mean, the trade unions are right at the top table. Um, people are always worried. that It's a bit like, you know, the, the fetish about ESG now. Now, these are important concepts. We all want to have businesses run properly. They want to be governed responsibly. They want to be accountable to a wider constituency than their shareholders. But if you made ESG front and centre, I wouldn't be buying shares in that company, right? Because to me, that's not core business. And yet that's what's happened with Europe. They're never interested in economics. They're interested in social welfare. And social welfare just means ever more handouts and ever more protections. And protectionism has fallen out of favour everywhere, pretty much, um, because competition is, is the crucial element in economic uh, prosperity.
Now, we are a live show, and we're very proud to be a live show. We're very proud of our live viewers who come in and give us fantastic questions. Uh, I'm going to give a quick shout out to Anthony, Christopher, Chris, you know, all already feeding questions unprompted into the chat box. So let me uh, go to some of them. Uh, Christopher wants to know your views on Europe lacking democratic legitimacy. Well, it's it's absolutely right. Uh, I talk about a democratic deficit, but it's it's very fundamental because it goes right to the heart of the whole project. I mean, the European Parliament is is misnamed. It, Parliament's supposed to govern. They don't govern. The the European Commission governs uh, without any democratic legitimacy. It tells you what to do and how to do it. Uh, so at all levels. People are left out. They don't get a serious vote. If there's a constitutional reform, and I think we mentioned this earlier, but uh, Jean-Claude Juncker was the classic example. If they lost a vote, and sometimes they did feel the need to go back and get a have a referendum to approve something, time and again, the people voted it down. And Juncker just kept saying, well, we'll just have to, they'll just have to vote again until they get it right. And they sort of wear you down and eventually uh, people end up supporting it. But it's not a any form of legitimate democracy. And Christopher, to follow up on nationalism, uh, the European elite seem to want to equate uh, nationalism with totalitarianism and with World War II. But uh, is this a kind of bait and switch? I, I mean, to some extent, I could see the Nazi project, the fascist project, the Soviet project as being very anti-national, as being very imperialistic. Yeah, it's, it's very hard to understand. It's an elitist view of the world, really. I mean, if you go back to um, 1648, which was really the foundation of the nationalist model, um, it, it, it's been remarkably successful, uh, and yet the elites have always had this utter distaste for national elements. It's almost as though, oh, your kid's playing your game, but we have a, a bigger worldview and, and we should be allowed to impose that because that's what intellectuals do. And I know Paul Johnson wants to find an intellectual as someone who cared more about ideas than people, and essentially that's what is going on here. And, um, you know, they probably regard the Treaty of Westphalia as a, a huge failure, but it's, it's quite the opposite. Um, in fact, if you look at uh, what the wealthy countries around the world, they tend to be the smaller ones. And um, that's because it's easier. So the idea of having one country of 450 million people like Europe would be an absolute disaster because you'll spend all your time putting out bushfires. And now, of course, you, what you're seeing is that people like Poland uh, are, are really outperforming by a huge margin. I mean, their GDP has gone up dramatically. Um, the, the EU spent all their time criticising them for being not democratic, which is quite, quite laughable when you think about what we've just been saying. And you are heading for a two-speed uh, EU system, which I think even Macron, Macron welcomes, but probably for other reasons. 
Antony, uh, as usual, has a question that presumes more knowledge than I have. <laughs> so I'm hoping I'm hoping you can answer his question because I can't. Um, he says that Michel Michel Barnier, the European Union's former chief Brexit negotiator, uh, is now seeking the presidency of France, and in doing so, he's saying that France's legal sovereignty is being threatened by the European Union. So is he now admitting? that Brexit was right. Well, Tusk is the same. I mean, it's disgraceful. T Tusk was um, president of Poland, right? And probably an ardent nationalist. They suddenly get on the EU bandwagon and, you know, it's just high on the hog stuff. They're floating around in private jets. They're lecturing people. They're, the way they treated Britain, I mean, they should have gone to jail for some of the things they did. Um, so Barnier is just another classic example of a career politician who'll say and do whatever he needs to do to get there. I don't think he's got much of a chance of winning, but it's, it's a classic example of uh, hypocrisy. Isn't that a betrayal of your own class for you to say so? Of my class? <laughs> Criticizing <Is> it... politicians. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I think we're... We, we all criticise the other side, so <laughs> politicians are quite good at being critical. And, of course, the media specialises in it, so it's part of the, the business. But, no, look, you, you take John Howard, was a classic example of someone who stood up for virtues and people appreciated that. Trust becomes a very important element. And if, you, if you're seen to be just changing with the wind, then uh, people aren't going to have confidence in you. Now... I don't know what goes on in Europe. They just don't seem to take notice of these um, personal shortcomings because, you know, um, what's his name, Junker, was around for 10 years or more and yet he was telling them how, how dishonest he was but didn't ever seem to matter because I suppose he wasn't electorally accountable. Um, and, again, I think because the, the turnouts have gone down and down and down, I suspect most people don't take much notice at all of what any of the politicians say. Most of the, the major parties have disappeared. You know, the traditional left-right, not anymore. That um, Macron is an Arabist, but he came from nowhere. I mean, he was uh, nominally in, um, was it Hollande's government, I think? Uh, but he was never a party man. And... Italy was the same, and Germany, they just formed these new parties out of nowhere. Um, so you can probably get away with a lot more in Europe than you can here. Just a reminder to everyone, we're talking to Richard Alston, AO, uh, about his new CIS paper, Reflections on the EU Project and Its Flaws, A Fatal Conceit About Markets and the Real World. Richard, we have a question from Chris that you do cover in your paper. I'd love to see you or hear you cover it here on the show. Um, where do EU recalcitrants, specifically Poland and Hungary, but I know you highlight in your paper that there are many other countries that are maybe a bit nervous about being in the European Union at this point. Where do these countries sit on the European Union's future? What role do they have to play for good or for bad in reforming or unpacking the European Union? Well, I think the Visegrad is a sign of things to come. So that's a group of four, uh, Poland, Slovakia, Czech Republic, and who's the other one? Um, oh, 
anyway. Uh, and, and Hungary, yes. So Hungary, Poland, Hungary, Orban, uh, Orban. yes, Czech, Czech Republic and Slovakia, the Visegrad group. Yeah. And you can probably add on to that Latvia and uh, Lithuania and Estonia. They're, the Baltic states seem to be much more interested in the Western economic model. Um, and, of course, the Scandinavians are too. So that's where you're likely to get this two-speed EU. Uh, France and Germany are sort of joined at the hip nominally, although Germany's far and away the most powerful uh, nation. In, and in fact, in many ways, its leadership has been very poor. I mean, Cole was just a backroom operator and Merkel was good at minding the shop, but they had no real sense of Europe before Germany. And although they never said that, but the system is, is weighted in such a way that Germany prospers mightily. You've got a lower e, uh, euro currency than you would otherwise have, and that helps Germany enormously. It means that there are no tariff barriers. They can go to any other European country where the labour rates are lower, and as a result, I think their debt to GDP is about 8%, and Italy's 160%. Um, and it's, it's a very bad mixture of countries, really. They don't have much in common in, in the ultimate. If, if you're interested in economic prosperity, why would you go in anywhere near France and Italy? And yet the amazing thing is I go to Italy a bit. <laughs> Place still seems to do all right in a funny sort of a way. Um, because, you know, they used to turn over prime ministers every six months. I think Berlusconi is the longest serving. Um, but it's a dysfunctional project. And um, I think the Visegrad plus group are the hope of the side. Uh, I can't see them ever persuading old Europe, France, Germany and Italy, because they're just too embedded in old world thinking, elitist thinking, non-economic thinking, whereas economics is, is front and centre for them. And that's the way it ought to be. I mean. You look at how China has progressed economically. It's because that essentially they recognise that capitalism works. Now, they never call it that. They call it Chinese characteristics. But and it's a command economy in many respects. But the reality is, you've got to have competition. You've got to have what Schumpeter called creative destruction. All these things are anathema to Europe. They, they just think these are very bad terms. And now in the the German elections, you know, there are major parties who think capitalism is a very bad thing. And um, the guy who's likely to win, uh, he comes from a party that um, doesn't believe in it, well, supports nationalism of almost everything, nationalisation. Uh, so I wouldn't want to be living in a place like that. I can't help contrasting Poland's uh, relative ec economic success uh, and especially during the Euro, Euro crisis, 2008, 2009, Poland flew right through that because of course it doesn't have the Euro, it's re retained its own currency. Whereas neighboring countries like the you know, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, uh, Slovakia suffered mightily during the Euro crisis. Has Poland's decision to stay outside the Euro given it the freedom to pursue economic policies that other countries that are tied to the euro maybe haven't had? Yes, but I think it's more than that. It's their, their worldview 
they've seen, I mean, they, they suffered under various forms of communism. They were basically taken off the map for 50 years. And um, they, they, was, they had a searing experience. And then they look at America, which, you know, for all its shambolic politics at times, has been a hugely successful economic model. And every other country around the world, I mean, we all abolish tariff barriers, well, reduce them dramatically. Uh, we all understand the nature of prosperity. You look at Singapore, um, and Europe's just stuck in the past. So Poland, there are only 19 countries out of 27, I think it's now back to 27, isn't it, members, uh, who have the euro. And Pol Poland, I suppose the criticism of Poland is that it's become a bit, bit authoritarian and but you can sort of understand why they're sick and tired of being told what to do and how to do it and to stick to Europe-wide rules, because they know that's not how you, you achieve progress. And uh, I think that the reason that, uh, what's his name, Morawiecki or something, uh, has been a long-serving prime minister is that people accept that he's on the right track. And uh, there's a lot of scepticism about, scepticism about um, ever closer union. That's the last thing that people like Poland want. Ian says that after 20 years of working in Southeast Asia, it's become obvious to him that the European Union tries to export its over-regulatory inefficiencies. And I might add that uh, this may even come to Australia where you know, European Union regulations get embedded in trade deals. To what extent is the European Union trying to drag the world down with it? Well, again, it's this primacy of the social model. Um, they regard human rights as more important than almost anything else. So they have trade deals which insist on you complying with their version of human rights and often saying that any disputes have to be resolved by European parliaments, uh, European courts, and, of course, they appoint those courts. Um, so... I think you'll find that people just won't want to sign up trade deals with Europe. I, I don't see any serious prospect of Australia ending up doing that sort of thing. I mean, everyone in... I always said in Britain they had three major parties, all pretty much left of centre. You no, know, the Conservatives slightly, but nonetheless, um, Thatcher was the only genuine Conservative leader in 100 years over there. We have two major parties, and essentially, particularly after the shortened debacle, they're now both right of centre. And uh, Labor under Albanese wants to get right into the middle and good on them. Uh, that's where you need to be. But uh, they're not going to swallow this nonsense out of Europe and uh, trying to have things that are sort of under, chronically underperforming just because of some sort of moral view of the world, which they don't believe in anyway. Sadly, we have to move towards a wrap-up. Uh, I'm going to feed through a comment from Benjamin. He says the European Union was doomed to failure as soon as it forced member countries to decouple fiscal policy from monetary policy. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, it's true. I don't know they were forced to do it. They simply chose to do what they thought was easiest. Uh, you know, they, they never really understood what an economic model 
was and what its virtues were, and they were imbued with this social democratic model. And it's the whole mindset over there is the primacy of social over economic. And that's not the way the world works. If you want to be successful, yeah, I mean, it's not an either or. Social policy is very important, but as John Howard used to say, if you want to have a decent welfare system, you have to have decent economic policies that deliver the funds to afford it. But in Europe, they don't really care about deficits, and yet they'll splurge ever more on you know, better workers' rights and you know more money for this, that, and the other huge infrastructure projects. Um, and it's it was as as Bernard says, it was doomed to failure uh, from the outset because it's a flawed model. Richard, I can't let you go today without pulling a couple quotes from your paper. Uh, you quote Jean-Paul Juncker, the uh, recently retired president of the European Commission, a Luxembourg prime minister, I believe, former Luxembourg prime minister, quote, when it becomes serious, you have to lie. And quote, I am for secret dark debates. <laughs> now, it's very easy for us to take a figure like Jean-Paul Juncker and make him out as some kind of James Bond villain. He certainly plays the part very well. But to what extent do these indiscreet comments reflect the reality of European Union thinking? Well, there's this insufferable superiority complex. I mean, he would say, well, what's Poland complaining about? I I got them a massive bribe to come on board. Um, if Britain wants to talk to us, come here. I never go and visit these places. If they want something, they come to see me. And of course, you know, his bottom line is there can be no democratic choice against the European treaties. They just had this blinkered mindset, which is driven by uh, not really caring about the future. These guys aren't going to be around to pick up the pieces. And I think one day there'll be a, a major uh, crisis which will lead to serious reforms. I can't see it on the horizon now. I think they'll probably limp on for quite a while, but people like Juncker will be safely retired. I don't really care. And I think Macron probably the same. But there's no sort of, you know, we talk about conviction politicians and, and Thatcher was a classic example. And I think John Howard was to a really large extent too because they, they had a vision of what they wanted to do and it was a, a positive one. But there's no one in Europe that you would say isn't a careerist. They're just interested in how do I earn a living? I'm happy to inherit the model. I'm happy to keep it going. I don't really care if it blows up, I won't be here. Richard Austin, thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure, Salvatore. Good to talk to you. And I'd like to point everyone to his newly published CIS paper, Reflections on the EU Project and Its Flaws, A Fatal Conceit About Markets and the Real World. I'd also like to thank all of you for coming to watch today. Thanks to Nico Melian, our producer, executive producer is Max Hawk Weaver. The director of the Center for Independent Studies is Tom Switzer. Next week, our very own Peter Kurti will be interviewing Greg Sheridan on cancel culture. We hope you will see us then on On Liberty.